Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist's private podcast. On today's maximal episode, we're going to talk about how to be satisfied. We're also going to answer a bunch of your surprise questions. But Ryan, first, let's read some more about less. Let's do it. This article is from The Atlantic. It's called How to Want Less. Who wrote it? Arthur C. Brooks. He's a well-known author, um, columnist, etc. All right. And it is so good. How to Want Less. It takes 42 minutes to read the whole thing. So we're not going to... Well, maybe we will. I don't know. It's so, so good. We'll be interrupting it along the way. Yeah. We also have some other stuff to, to touch on as well. But let's go ahead and dive into this. We'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to follow along. I glanced into my teenage daughter's bedroom one spring afternoon last year, expecting to find her staring absentmindedly at the Zoom screen that passed for high school during the pandemic. Instead, she was laughing uproariously at a video she had found. I asked her what she was looking at. It's an old man dancing like a chicken and singing, she told me. I came over to her laptop, not being above watching someone making an idiot of himself for 15 seconds of social media fame. What I found instead was the septuagenarian rock star, Mick Jagger. (laughs) (laughs) No way, dude. This is the best. This is one of the best opening paragraphs. (laughs) In a fairly recent concert, croaking out the Rolling Stones mega hit, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. A song that debuted on the charts when I was a year old for probably the millionth time. An audience of tens of thousands of what looked to be mostly baby boomers and Gen Xers sang along rapturously. Is this serious, she asked? Oh my goodness. Do people your age actually like this? Oh my God. I took umbrage. I had to admit it was a legitimate question. (laughs) Kind of, I answered. It wasn't just the music or even the performance, I assured her. To my mind, the longevity of that particular song, number two on Rolling Stone magazine's original list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, has a lot to do with the deep truth it speaks. As we wind our way through life, I explained, satisfaction, the joy from fulfillment of our wishes or expectations, is evanescent. No matter what we achieve, see, acquire, or do, it seems to slip from Mm. our grasp. I was on a roll now. Satisfaction, I told my daughter, is the greatest paradox of human life. We crave it. We believe we can get it. We glimpse it and maybe even experience it for a brief moment. And then it vanishes. But we never give up on our quest to get and hold on to it. I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, Jagger sings. How? Through sex and consumerism, according to the song. By building a life that is ever more Baroque, expensive, and laden with crap. Mm. My daughter's mirth now utterly extinguished. She had the expression I imagine Jean-Paul Satier, uh, how do I pronounce it? Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre, okay, thank you. Daughter must have had every day. So life is just a rat race, and we're doomed to an existence of dissatisfaction, she asked. That sucks. Yeah. It does suck, I said. But we're not doomed. 
I told her, we can beat this affliction if we work to truly understand it and if we're willing to make some difficult changes to the way that we live. Like what, she asked, her eyes narrowing with the healthy suspicion that comes from being the child of a social scientist and thus an unwitting participant in many behavioral experiments. (laughs) I paused. It was, in fact, a question to which I devoted a lot of my time over the previous few years, not just professionally, but personally, and and with sometimes uneven results. Even the most successful people suffer from the dissatisfaction problem. Mm. I remember once seeing LeBron James, the world's greatest basketball player, with a look of abject despair on his face after his Cleveland Cavaliers lost the NBA championship to the Golden State Warriors. All of the world's wealth and accolades were like straw in that moment of loss. Mm. You know, I would posit that the more successful you are, the more you're afflicted with this. With the dissatisfaction. The dissatisfaction. And that's and I, I think it's funny because I never I just have a different connection with that song now from him kind of explaining it. And that's it's Mick Jagger's way of being like, I got everything and I still can't get no satisfaction. In fact, as you're saying, it's now even harder for me to right. get it. Yeah. There's an equation the the climax of this gives us an equation for satisfaction. Okay. And it is beautiful and brilliant and simple, and yet we never think about it. Mm. So we'll get there. Okay. Return to text. Abdul Al-Marad, the emir and caliph of Cordoba in 10th century Spain, summed up a life of worldly success at about age 70. He said, I... I have now reigned above 50 years in victory or peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call. And the payoff? I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. So the most powerful man in the world at the time, or his world at least, his kingdom. He was 70 years old. And looking back on his life. He can count up 14 days of happiness. I wonder what that's a good number or not. (laughs) (laughs) You tell me. (laughs) All right. Mm. Uh, The article goes on to say, as an observer, I understand the problem. I write a column about human happiness for the Atlantic and teach classes on the subject at Harvard. I know that satisfaction is one of the core macronutrients of happiness, the other two being enjoyment and meaning. And that, and that its slippery nature is one of the reasons happiness is often so elusive as well. Mm. Yet time and time again, I have fallen into the trap of believing that success and its accomplishments would fulfill me. On my 40th birthday, I made a bucket list of things I hoped to do or achieve. They were mainly accomplishments only a wonk would want, writing books and columns about serious subjects, teaching at a top school, traveling to give lectures and speeches, maybe even leading a university or think tank. Whether these things were good and noble goals or not, they were not my goals. And I imagine that if I hit them, I would be satisfied. Let's pause on that for a moment, Ryan. Isn't that funny, man? 
because we you and up, I yeah. have quite the resume. Sure. We, yeah. And it's, it's funny because the list of accolades we have are amazing. I've never had, I, I think where people fail a lot is they, they list the acc- accolades and, and like they're saying, like, once I get all those accolades, I'll finally feel satisfied. The funny thing about the accolades that you and I have now versus in our corporate life, mm-hmm. the accolades we had in our corporate life were accolades we strove to get. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, if I could win President's Club. Right. And then that didn't make me happy. Got to win it again. I have to win it again. Yeah. If I have the luxury car, if I have the big suburban house, if I have all the right suits, the right clothes, the right tailor, the right things, the right relationships, yeah. the right boss, the right job, the right city, the right circumstance, the right wife, the right marriage, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. If I have all of the right things, if I achieve those things, then I will be happy. Mm-hmm. And of course, you achieve those things and you get the happiness for a moment. He'll talk about that here in the article. But then it just dissipates, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Here's the difference between now. Like all the so-called accolades that we have now, we didn't ask for. Right. I didn't ask to be nominated for an Emmy. Right. I didn't ask to be verified on Instagram or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like that, those things don't really matter to me. And if you took them away, it wouldn't change my satisfaction. Right. And... All of the other things, like being interviewed by the New York Times or whatever, there was a time where I would have wanted that. But mm-hmm. wanting those things and then getting those things just then pacifies me. It's mm-hmm. what that's when we we even use that metaphor, pacifying, right? Yeah. What do we do to a baby? All at once is the pacifier. Yeah. It doesn't make the baby happy. It pacifies the baby. It's a temporary sense of accomplishment or comfort or. Mm-hmm. Or uh, maybe a temporary sense of satisfaction. Yes. Yeah. And one might argue, and I think we'll even argue with Arthur Brooks in this article for a little bit here. One might argue that satisfaction is different from fulfillment. Fulfillment, uh, when I, and I don't want to get bogged down in definitions, but satisfaction, like you eat a meal that is highly satisfying, nutrient dense. Right. It doesn't mean that you are perpetually fulfilled. Oh, I ate that one meal. Now I'm good to go for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, that's true if you get into an accident on the way home and you die, but otherwise you're going to be hungry again. Yes. Like satisfaction is when like you get, you get this dopamine rush and you don't desire anything else. So that's where food, but the problem is, is like we need to eat food on a regular basis. So, I mean, I'm just looking for a metaphor here on it's impossible to be satisfied hundred percent of the time because we have different needs. And depending on where we're at in our life, those needs, you know, can change. Yes. And so what what he gets to later in this article is an equation for satisfaction. Mm. And I think it'll blow you away with its simplicity. But let's return to the text here. I found that list, that bucket list, nine years ago when I was 48. So I guess he's 57 now. And so he found the bucket list eight years after he made it, right? Mm -hmm. And I realized that I had achieved every item on it. Mm. I had been a tenured professor, then the president of a think tank. I was giving frequent speeches and had written some books that had sold well and was writing a column for the New York Times. But none of that had brought me the lasting joy I'd envisioned. Each accomplishment thrilled me for a day or a week, maybe a month, but never more. Is that satisfaction lasting joy? Yeah. That, Are those interchangeable? I, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't either. But that's what, the way he writes it, I, I, I look at them as interchangeable, which I could see an argument for that. And I think what you're saying here is what the real problem is. We begin to conflate 
joy. Mm. With pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So lasting pleasure is really probably what he means here. Yes. And so I think satisfaction and pleasure often go hand in hand. Yeah. And yet, it doesn't require... In fact, sometimes those things can get in the way Mm. of our joy. Think about they... You and I were both obese when we were kids. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of pleasure. Yeah, food brought some really amazing pleasure. But it really got in the way of our joy. And I just replaced food with drugs in my 20s. (laughs) (laughs) Which also got in the way of your joy. Yes, 100%. Return to text here. I devoted my life to climbing those rungs. I was still devoting my life to climbing. Beavering away 60 to 80 hours a week to accomplish the next thing. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. All the while terrified of losing the last thing. Isn't Dude, that funny? Oh, I even catch myself doing it with like the the Emmy nominated or like New York Times bestselling. Uh-huh. Like somehow I think I'm going to lose that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so first off, you can't. Right. I know. But it's funny. But even like, if you could, so what? Right. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't change anything. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But I do. But I do it, is, it is funny. Like I do have this feeling of like, you know, scared of it being taken away. Mm-hmm. Like not. It doesn't ruin my day or even my hour, but it's just like it's an impulse I can feel every once in a while. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's silly. I don't, I don't like sit there and, you know, let it fester. It's, it's passing. It doesn't ruin your day. Right. But it ruins your moment. Ruins my moment, yeah. And that's what we're really talking about here because you can only be satisfied in the moment anyway. Mm-hmm. I can't be satisfied in the past. Right. The past has already happened. Whether or not I was satisfied back then mm. doesn't matter for right now. And so in a weird way, there's always this new opportunity to be fulfilled. Maybe I wasn't fulfilled by the past, but if I'm fulfilled right now, I'm fulfilled. And the only way to take me out of that fulfillment is to start thinking about, oh no, I'm not going to be fulfilled in the future. Oh my God, I wasn't fulfilled yesterday, last year, a decade ago. So what? If I'm fulfilled right now, then I am Mm -hmm. fulfilled. Yeah. You could tweet that, Danny Unknown. All right, let's get back to this text here. The cost... The costs of that thing of existence are exceedingly obvious, but it was only when I looked back at my list that I genuinely began to question the benefits and to think seriously about the path I was walking. Mm. And what about you? Your goals are probably very different from mine, and perhaps your lifestyle is too, but the trap is the same. Everyone has dreams. And they beckon with promises of sweet, lasting satisfaction if you achieve them. But dreams are liars. When they come true, it's fine for a while. And then a new dream appears. Mm. McJagger's satisfaction dilemma and ours starts with a rudimentary formula. Satisfaction equals getting what you want. That's what we think, right? Mm -hmm. Satisfaction involves getting what I want. Then I will be satisfied. Yeah. If I get the car, I'll be satisfied. If I eat the meal, I'll be satisfied. If I have sex with the beautiful woman, I will be satisfied. Mm -hmm. But of course, that satisfaction, it dissipates. And so it's almost as though we need a new language around this, Mm -hmm. which he gets into here. It's so simple, and yet its power is deeply encoded within us. Give a three-year-old the French fry she is reaching for and see her satisfied expression. But then, after a couple of seconds, 
watching watch the wanting return and that's the actual problem isn't it the stone song should really have been titled i can't keep no satisfaction right isn't that true cuz i can get satisfaction yeah but it's like trying to hold well you know my metaphor that i will do with ella sometimes when she's at the beach mm-hmm. i told her i would catch a wave for her yeah i put it in a bucket and I show her the wave. Mm-hmm. So that's not a wave. It's like I can catch a wave, but I can't keep it. Yeah. Because it's no longer a wave. Yeah. And I think the same is true with our lives. Yeah. It makes me think about um I remember like the first couple of times I got uh like high on pain pills. It felt so good, like at the climax of it. And I remember I often would be like, oh man, I feel so good right now. And then I and then it would bring me down quick because I'm like, I know this isn't gonna last forever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, droning the moment of it, of it coming when mm-hmm. it was like going to wear off. And then also wanting to get it back, but yeah. also not, he talks about not yeah. being able to get back to that initial pleasure. Yeah. It's almost as if our brains are programmed to prevent us from enjoying anything for very long. Yeah. In fact, they are. The term homeostasis was introduced in 1926 by a psychologist named Walter B. Cannon who showed in his book, The Wisdom of the Body, that we have built-in mechanisms to regulate our temperature, as well as our levels of oxygen, water, salt, sugar, protein, fat, and calcium. But the concept applies much more broadly than that. To survive, all living systems must maintain stable conditions as best they can. So that's homeostasis. Mm. Homeostasis keeps us alive and healthy, but it also explains why drugs and alcohol work as they do, as opposed to how we wish they would. Mm. While that first dose of a new recreational substance might give you great pleasure, Mm -hmm. your previously naive brain quickly learns to sense an assault on its equilibrium and fight back by neutralizing the effect of the entering drug, making it impossible to get the first feeling again. So it's literally, it's the the reason we call it, you know, chasing the dragon, right? You're never able to get back to that first feeling. No. But it's because your body neutralizes it in a way to maintain homeostasis. To make sure that you're not imbalanced. As the Bucknell University neuroscientist Judith Gazelle explains brilliantly in her book, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction, addiction is in part a byproduct of homeostasis. As Hmm. the brain becomes used to continual drug-induced production of dopamine, the neurotransmitter of pleasure, which plays a large role in nearly all addictive behaviors, it steeply curtails ordinary production, making another hit necessary simply to feel normal. Yeah. And that, that's where you were. Oh, my goodness. When you were spending five grand a month up to that yeah. at one point on opioids, oh, yeah. Yeah. it was, I just need to feel normal. Like, man, I can't go to work today unless I, like, yeah, get a pill. It was horrible. Oof. Yeah. The same set of principles works on our emotions. When you get an emotional shock, good or bad, your brain wants to re, uh, recalibrate, making it hard to stay on the high or low for very long. This is especially true when it comes to positive emotions for primordial reasons that we'll get into shortly. It's why 
When you achieve conventional, acquisitive success, you can never get enough. If you base your sense of self-worth on success, money, power, prestige, you will run from victory to victory initially to keep feeling good and then to avoid feeling awful. Mm. And that's strangely where we got, Ryan, in our late 20s. First, it was like, oh, if I got this promotion, if I get this new store, hire this new employee, open up this new, win the contest, whatever it is. Yeah. It's because it's going to keep feeling good. But then it's like, now I have to do all these things to just stop feeling bad. Isn't that, I feel like that's what we do every morning we wake up though. Like we're, you know, we're focused on how are we going to, how are we going to feel good today? Or how are we going to avoid feeling bad today? I mean, that's why I drink coffee. It's like I wake up and I'm tired. I'm like, oh, I need a cup of coffee so I can like not feel this, this tiredness, this dread. Yeah. I mean, I'm addicted to coffee for sure. Me too. Um, so, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just interesting because there's, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm making an argument for like, it depends on how you are running away from pain or how you're, you know, heading towards pleasure. I mean, I think that's why being a monk or an ascetic is appealing to some because mm-hmm. they get to that point where they're like, they don't want to have to avoid all the time. They don't want to have to chase all the time. That's right. And there is something very respectable about someone who can just sit in a room and like really not desire anything. That's right. But there's such a thrill, right? With like, with running away from pain or running towards pleasure. Like there's a thrill that's associated with it. It's why I like to snowboard. Yeah. It's why I like to, you know, uh, well, I don't really surf as much as I practice surfing, but, (laughs) but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's why I do a lot of things. Yeah. It's this chasing pleasure. And if I'm feeling pleasant, then I'm avoiding that pain. I think there are other reasons to do some of these things. Set the coffee thing aside, because mm-hmm. I totally agree with you on that. Uh, but if with the surfing thing, quite often, it's what brings people into the present moment. Because you can't listen to a podcast. Right. You can't watch TV. You can't interact with friends. It yeah. it grounds you in the moment. It also literally grounds you. The ocean is yeah. the most grounding place there is. And yeah. so... Uh, it's it, like it forces you into the moment. Snowboarding forces me into the moment. Exactly. I can't be thinking about anything else but like staying upright, staying straight, avoiding obstacles. It's what Kapil Gupta would call a state of no mind. Yeah. As opposed to not being mindful, but in a way being mindless. It's re- interesting how adrenaline brings you into that state. I don't know that it's always adrenaline, though. Yeah. I, I think I think adrenaline is the byproduct of it. Mm. But like I know when I'm writing... Quite often, I get that same feeling, that bliss, elation. Manic. Yeah, yeah. it feels uh, manic the way that, that snowboarding feels manic yes, to you. Right? I, yeah, yeah. And so it may produce uh, a type of adrenaline or dopamine, but I'm not chasing it in the moment when I'm writing. It just seems to appear. from, And I never know when it's going to appear. It's a, a strange you, right, sort of thing. Right, you're not chasing it. You're just doing what you do. And then it's a byproduct of you being committed to that, that thing you're doing, to writing. And then when I try to chase it, it's a ghost. It's like trying to chase a ghost. You never oh, catch it. Oh, yeah. And so as soon as you start chasing it, then it becomes a chase and you can't ever hold on to it. Or you break your back. <laughs> like I did when I was snowboarding, chasing, chasing a higher adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, a I good point. It. Yeah. <laughs> the article goes on to say, the unending race against the headwinds of homeostasis has a name. It's called the hedonic treadmill. No matter how fast we run, we never arrive. At home, I dream that 
at Naples, at Rome, I can be intoxicated with beauty and lose my sadness, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote in his 1941 essay, Self-Reliance. I pack my trunk, embrace my friends, embark on the sea, and at last wake up in Naples, and there beside me is the stern fact, the sad self, unrelenting, identical, that I fled from. Mm. It's a long-winded way to say, wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. Scholars argue over whether our happiness has an immutable set point or if it might move around a little over the course of our life due to general circumstances, but no one has ever found that immediate bliss from a major victory or achievement will endure. As for money, more of it helps up to a point and can buy things and services that relieve the problems of poverty, which are the sources of unhappiness, but forever chasing money as a source of enduring satisfaction simply does not work. Yeah, I'm reminded real quick, I was talking to Jamie Kilstein, mm. who's going to be back on the podcast soon, filling in for Ryan when he's uh, on vacation. And Jamie was talking about how money doesn't buy happiness. It's the most profound thing I've ever heard him say, by the way. I just, mm. I love it. He said, but it buys you some breathing room. Yeah. I thought that was a great way to put it. Yeah. The problem is we take that breathing room and just fill it up with more anxieties. Yeah. As opposed to, and it was funny because he was, he was getting ready to perform at like the Beacon Theater. It was like his lifelong dream to perform there. Mm-hmm. And instead of like, you know, giving him like a pat on the back or whatever, I just said, hey man, enjoy the breathing room. Mm-hmm. Because actually appreciating that moment, not filling the space with more, mm-hmm. recognizing you already have enough. And so, we don't have to do anything with that breathing room yeah. other than, than breathe. The article goes on to say, the nature of, adapt, uh, of adaptation condemns men to live on a hedonic treadmill. The psychologists Philip Brickman and Donald T. Campbell wrote in 1971, to seek new levels of stimulation merely to maintain old levels of subjective pleasure, to never achieve any kind of permanent happiness or satisfaction. Yet, even if you recognize all this, getting off the treadmill is hard. Mm. It feels dangerous. Our urge for more is quite powerful, but stronger still is our resistance to less. Our resistance. How funny is that? Even when I'm moving as one of the minimalists and everything I own fits into my car, Oh, maybe I should hold on to this little widget, this thing, whatever it is. Yeah. Now, I've been making a list. I want to share it on a future. When we get the new podcast format, mm. we have this new segment called Obsolete Objects. And I realized like, I'm holding on to some things that I use occasionally mm-hmm. that my life would be fine without or maybe even better without mm. because they're not taking up that tiny, tiny speck of psychological space. But I've been holding on to it because of what? My resistance to less, even me. That's one of the insights that earned Princeton's Daniel Kahneman the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economics for work he did with the late Stanford psychologist Amos Tversky. You, so you try and you try, but you make no lasting progress toward your goal. You find, isn't that weird? You achieve your goals, but it doesn't get you your goal. Mm-mm. Oh. Yeah. And that's the problem with goals is... We think the goal, the achievement of the goal, 
is now going to bring us to a new level of happiness, as though it's a video game. Man, you find yourself running simply to avoid being thrown off the back of the treadmill. The wealthy keep accumulating far beyond anything they could possibly spend, and sometimes more than they want to bequeath to their children. They hope that at some point they will feel happy, their lives complete, and are terrified of what will happen if they stop running. As the great 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer said, Wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. And the same is true of fame. Ooh, that's good. Man. It's interesting. It's interesting because you, you, if you drink regular water, there is a sense of satisfaction eventually. Mm-hmm. But even that wanes. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe here's, that's a great analogy. I'm glad you brought that up because I never thought of it that way. Water is probably the best analogy for, for satisfaction. Mm-hmm. If you stay hydrated throughout the day, mm-hmm. There may be a point where you're perpetually sad. You're never thirsty. Yeah. But if you over drink, you, you drink too much water, you're, you know, beer bonging water or whatever you're doing over there. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan and his, his games. My beer bong. I do uh, not own a beer bong. Just want all the patrons to know that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Anymore. Anymore. Yeah. After that packing party. That's right. <laughs> I got rid of it. I donated it yeah. to the frat boys. <laughs> so, but there, there's a point where you are no longer thirsty. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny because like not being thirsty isn't joyous. It's just, you don't feel depleted. But it makes room for joy. It's it really does, hard. Yeah. If, imagine if you're, that's true. Yeah. If, if you are better call Saul stuck in the desert level of thirsty, it doesn't matter what happened to you. Yeah. You, uh, yeah. you can't feel joy when you have that kind of, extreme dissatisfaction. Yeah, I have had moments where like I was watching a play, I was watch, I was somewhere in a crowd and whatever I was watching, like it took me out. I was so thirsty. I was like, I, ha- I can't focus on what's happening right now in front of me because I'm so freaking thirsty. Or if you have to pee really bad. Yeah, right. I remember right. going to the beach and I had to pee really bad. So you just went in the ocean? I would have, but I was like wearing like clothes. <laughs> I wasn't wearing it. And so like... Just peed your pants? And yeah, no. Took a hole in his hand. <laughs> no, I, I just held it and I was like, this would be beautiful. If you didn't have to piece of it. If I wasn't so dissatisfied I, in this moment. I have a question. Is all right, so Josh, when he has to go to the bathroom really bad, he can feel it in his teeth. Does anyone else relate to this, feeling it in your teeth? Can you elaborate on what that is? It like t- my whole my my mouth starts to tingle. Like he can feel it in his teeth. If I have to pee, like because Ryan and I were on tour for a really long time, and he'd always be like, like if he felt it in his teeth, it was like, all right, we gotta like find something quick. Yeah, it's not, I don't think the urine is actually creeping into my mouth. <laughs> no, 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 no. But there's a <laughs> sensation that's connected to your mouth when you have to pee. Yes, yes. yeah. It, it feels like my, my body's like, hey, get rid of something. Something's wrong here. Right. Pull out your teeth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I just wanted to see if anyone else could relate to that. You let us know, uh, patrons who are watching this live. Yeah, let us know in the live stream. By the way, in your teeth. patrons, if you have questions for the live stream, drop them in the chat right now. We'll be getting to your questions here shortly. Mm. According to evolutionary psychology, our tendency, tendency to strive for more is perfectly understandable. Throughout most of human history, starvation loomed closer than it does for the most part today. A, quote, rich caveman had very few, had a few extra animal skins 
and arrowheads, and maybe a few piles of seeds and dried fish to spare. With this plenty, he might survive a bad winter. Mm. Our troglodyte ancestors, a troglodyte's like a, a person who lives in a cave. Okay. Our troglodyte ancestors didn't just want to make it through the winter, though. They had bigger ambitions. They wanted to find allies and mates, too, with the goal, whether conscious or not, of passing on their genes. And what would make that possible? Among other things, the accumulation of animal skins, demonstrating greater competence, prowess, and attractiveness than the humanoid in the next cave over. Mm. I always impress the ladies, my animal skins. <laughs> Oh my god! You bring up like how uh, you're 23 and me, and how much Neanderthal you are. <laughs> <laughs> Alabama, do you know the story? So I don't. Okay, so I got the um, 23 and me, and it tells you. Well, I read it incorrectly. <laughs> it said that I am more Neanderthal than 94 percent of the population. <laughs> which, like, okay, like everyone has. Well, not everyone, but most. European uh, people of European descent have some bit of Neanderthal within them, right? Sure. And but I read it because uh, it was the top of the results. I read it as I'm 94% Neanderthal, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> which I was like, that explains a lot. <laughs> it's incredible, that explains the, the, the cranium. <laughs> All right, so uh, since the cavemen, surprisingly little has changed since then. Scholars have shown that our acquisitive tendencies persist amid plenty and regularly exceed our needs. This owes to our vestigial urges, software that still exists in our brains from ancient times. Mm. Competing with rivals for mates helps explain our weird fixation on social comparison. Hmm. Isn't that like we're always comparison comparing ourselves? Got to the, the war of comparison is yeah. so. There's just this tug. I th I feel like because we're talking about how these are like you know um you know traits from years back. There might have been a survival thing with wanting more. Mm -hmm. There might have been a survival thing with the comparison. Mm -hmm. But now with the uh, culture of access and with the technology we have, mm -hmm. like mix those two together. It's like now it's our um, depression machine. You know, <laughs> like the, yeah, yeah. It was the thing is it was a rational response back then. That's what right. he's saying. Like, hey, if you starve, you're going to die. It's rational to right. want more when you're in a constant threat of starvation. Yeah. However, today it's irrational mm -hmm. because no one in this room is going to starve. Right. Right. And yet, I mean, there are, don't get me wrong. There's certainly people around the world, but malnutrition, the, the problem of malnutrition in many parts of the world has much more to do with access to junk food, right. to empty calories, to toxins and poisons and pesticides mm -hmm. and and all of these things that are making us less healthy mm -hmm. than it does to ha not having food it's just having you know, too much food eating too much uh, over abundance of of calories that aren't nutritious yeah all right back to the text here competing with rival mates helps us explain our weird fixation on social comparison when we think about satisfaction from success or possessions, or fitness, or good looks, there's another element to consider. Success is relative. Satisfaction requires not just that you continuously run in place, 
on your own hedonic treadmill, but that you run slightly faster than other people are running on theirs. Mm. We're all, I mean, think of that metaphor. We're all running on these hedonic treadmills. Yes. And I'm, I've met, have you, you remember going to like a gym and there's just a bunch of treadmills all lined up next to each other. Mm-hmm. And you're running faster, but you're still in the same, same place as everyone place. else. Yeah. Oh, I've definitely, I've been at the gym before. And like, you know, I started a three or four or five, whatever the number is. And then I look over, I glance at someone next to me and I'm like, oh, they're like, they're on like a seven. Mm-hmm. Well, I only go 7.1. <laughs> you win. Yeah. What and do I win? Ryan's been satisfied ever since. That's right. <laughs> this is why people with hundreds of millions of dollars can feel like failures if their friends are billionaires and why mm. famous Hollywood actors can be despondent that others are even more famous. Oh, yeah. This reminded me of uh, Andrew Schultz bit former podcast guest of ours, Andrew Schultz, the comedian. He said, I never understood why Jay-Z was like trying to become a billionaire. So like, congratulations. Now you're the poorest billionaire. As soon as you reach one billion. Yeah. Now you're the brokest billionaire, right? Right. Yeah. But you're one of the richest millionaires. Right. But, but as soon as you become a billionaire, you're like, now it's it's a whole comparison game, right? Oh, that's crazy. At some level, we all know that social comparison is ridiculous and harmful, and extensive research confirms this. Keeping up with the Joneses is associated with anxiety and even depression. In a series of experiments that required subjects to solve puzzles, for instance, the unhappiest people were constantly those paying the most attention to how they performed relative to other subjects. Mm. Think about that. You're just doing a puzzle. And it can be t- total bliss when you're immer- uh, immersed in the puzzle. Right. Or when you're surfing or mm-hmm. snowboarding. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you look over, you're like, that guy's snowboarding better, faster, stronger, uh, more proficiently than I am. Yeah. Now it's taking you out of that moment. Right. That's right there in front of you. Mm. Yeah. The small rush of pleasure we get from doing mm-hmm. better than some can easily be swallowed up by the unhappiness from doing worse than others. Mm. But the urge to have more than others, to be more than others, tugs at us relentlessly. We live in a time when we are regularly counseled to get back to nature, to our long-ago past, in our diets, our sense of communal obligation, and more. But if our goal is happiness that endures, following our natural urges does not help us in the main. That is Mother Nature's cruel hoax. And I think this is where I'm going to start disagreeing with, with Arthur Brooks here. Okay. Happiness doesn't help propagate the species, so nature doesn't select for it. I do agree with that. Okay. If you conflate intergenerational survival with happiness, that's your problem, not nature's. Here is the line that I strongly disagree with. Mm. In fact, our natural state is dissatisfaction, Mm. punctuated by brief moments of satisfaction. And I think the reason I disagree with this, it has to do with definitions. Yeah. So I don't want to get stuck in the definitions. The water analogy you brought up is brilliant, Ryan, because the natural state of not being thirsty is not pleasure or displeasure. It is neither. Yeah. Or it's, I kind of look at it like it's both. It's equilibrium. Yeah. It's equanimity. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel the desire to drink more because I'm not thirsty. I'm also not 
overjoyed by the fact of not being thirsty. Yeah. You notice the pain only when the pain is there, when the pain goes like you've rolled your ankle before. Yeah. And it's all you can think about in that moment. Yeah. But right now you're not thinking about rolling your ankle at all because the pain there is gone. Yeah. I will agree that pain is much more powerful than pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe that's what he's talking about here. Right. He goes on to say, in fact, our natural state is dissatisfaction punctuated by brief moments of satisfaction. You might not like the hedonic treadmill, but Mother Nature thinks it's pretty great. She likes watching you strive to achieve <laughs> an elusive goal. What a mean person. Yes. You know what's interesting? Going back to that water analogy, though, the default state is, I would say, is thirsty. Because you are, you're born with a thirst, you know? What's your default state in this moment? It's neither is my point. Yes, okay. And, and so, yeah. yes, you can become thirsty. Mm-hmm. You can become quenched. Yeah. But when you are quenched but not overhydrated, mm-hmm. then there is no, the, the, yeah. there is no great pleasure. There's no dissatisfaction either. I think... It's just existence. Yeah, I think I'm trying to... I'm not saying I agree with him. Because I would much rather look at the default state as being happy, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. So, so, but I am trying to understand where he's coming from. Yes. And what I can, what I'm kind of getting a vision of right now is like, we're always going to be hungry at a certain point. We're always going to be thirsty. Like these are symptoms to let us know how to like live. Uh, well, how to just live, how to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And then there's like these, um, you know, esoteric is the word I want to use. Uh, uh, desires that we have, yeah. these wants that we have. And that is like to help us not just be alive, but to thrive. That's right. So I do get it where he says like the default state is, what, what did he say, misery or what did he say? He said that our natural state is dissatisfaction. It's dissatisfaction. And it's, but it's almost like we need that dissatisfaction to thrive. Mm. I don't know. I, 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 again, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I could see that perspective. I can definitely see the perspective. And I, and I, I understand the essence of what he's saying. Mm-hmm. He, he's saying is that when we don't get something that we need, we want that thing. And here's where we agree. The problem with that type of craving, mm-hmm. you know, as an adult, there are like three fundamental cravings to sure. eat, to sleep, to procreate. Yeah. And we have that natural craving that will appear. And then we have to fulfill that. The problem is that craving moves beyond our needs to our wants, mm. our desires. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the Buddhists here in a moment who talk about uh, the addressing uh, the problem of the desires. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say, because strivers get the goods, even if they don't enjoy them for long. More mates, better mates, better chances of survival for our children. These ancient mandates are responsible for much of the code that runs incessantly in the deep recesses of our brains. It doesn't matter whether you found your soulmate and would never stray. The algorithms designed to get us more mates or allow us to make an upgrade continue whirling, which is why you still want to be attractive to strangers. Neurobiological instinct, which we experience as dissatisfaction, is what drives us forward. Mm. So maybe here's the detente between what I think about satisfaction, dissatisfaction, and what Arthur Brooks thinks here. Mm -hmm. Maybe what he's saying is, in fact, our natural state is neurobiological instinct. We have certain instincts. Yeah. 
And that takes away the the moralizing yeah. of it. Because yes, I was it's, say it's very scientific. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yet approach. we know that we have instincts. We know that we have biological cravings, yeah. but that word craving is often thought of as a bad a thing, bad thing yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But of course it's not bad. There is no good or bad. Uh, there is perspectival situational constructs, right? That we latch onto. Mm-hmm. And so let's, uh, let's get back to the text here. He says, there are many other related examples of evolved tendencies that militate against enduring happiness. For example, the tendency toward jealous misery in our romantic relationships. Isn't that such a big one? Jealous, Jealousy is such a wasted emotion. I was talking to someone about this the other day. Mm-hmm. Jealousy is a wasted emotion in today's world. Mm-hmm. But evolutionarily, it makes sense to be yeah. jealous because like, the cost is so high. If, if uh, I am a woman and I see the person... You know, 30,000 years ago who's supposed to keep me safe, mm. the, the man who's supposed to keep me safe mm-hmm. uh, from other you know, predators, basically, mm-hmm. then if they're going off with someone else, then now that person doesn't have the resources to, to keep me safe. So sure. we uh, evolve that jealousy and then vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, because uh, as a guy, and now all of a sudden, the person who I want to impregnate, if they go off with someone else, then, uh-oh, how do I know that it's my kid now? And I don't want to take care of someone else that is not my seed. That's right. the evolutionary, the biological imperative yeah, of sorts. Yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. Mother Nature, while inviting us to cheat, would also like us to be highly alert to the possibility that our par- partner might be cheating. <laughs> Studies find that men who are at risk of spending resources to unwittingly raise children who aren't theirs fixate most on sexual infidelity. Women who are at risk that their mate will become attached to and thus divert resources to another female and her children respond most negatively to emotional infidelity. Hmm. Hmm. The insatiable goals to acquire more, succeed capaciously, and be as attractive as possible lead us to objectify one another and even ourselves. When people see themselves as little more than their attractive bodies, jobs, or bank accounts, it brings great suffering. Ryan, what were we talking about during the minimal episode this week? Mm. We were talking about identity. Oh, isn't that cute? You think you have an identity. Yeah. Well, what, that's exactly what this line says here. When people see themselves as little more than their attractive bodies, that's their identity. I'm my job. I'm mm-hmm. my body. I'm my bank account. It brings great suffering. Studies show that self-objectification is associated with a sense of invisibility and lack of autonomy, and physical self-objectification has a direct relationship with eating disorders and depression in women. Professional self professional self-objectification is a tyranny every bit as nasty. You become a heartless taskmaker to yourself, taskmaster to yourself, seeing yourself as nothing more than homo economicus. Love and fun are sacrificed for another day of work in search of a positive internal answer to the question, am I successful yet? We become cardboard cutouts of real people. Mm. That question often drives us because we get success, ostensible success. Other people think you're successful, but rarely do you think you're successful Yeah, is what happens. And so 
you keep trying to strive. And there's imposter syndrome. They're seeing through the falsities of the so-called success that you got. There's always another level of success to have to be had. I mean, I think about Bezos Mm -hmm. and how, you know, he is quote unquote successful. I mean, almost a trillionaire, if not a trillionaire. And, you know, starting Amazon, this crazy successful company. And he's like, you know what? I need to go to space. I need to build rockets. Yeah. Like that's the next level of success for him. I've achieved everything on this planet. Yeah. Right. So therefore I need to go to other planets and achieve there. What a metaphor. And that's why I say happiness is the default state is you don't need to go to Mars to be happy. Mm -hmm. You don't need to go to the new town to be happy. You don't need a new job. You don't need the new relationship. You don't need to start a podcast or start a blog or write a book to be happy. Yeah. You can do all of those things happily. You can be happy while you're doing them, but they are not going to make you happy. Mm -hmm. So maybe here's the honest answer. Maybe satisfaction and dissatisfaction are the natural state. Mm, Yeah, both at the same. I totally agree with that. It makes no sense in modern life to use our energies to have five cars, five bathrooms, or even five pairs of sneakers, but we just want them. Neuroscientists have looked into this. Dopamine is excreted in response to thoughts about buying new things, winning money, acquiring more power or fame, having new sexual partners. So really, Ryan, dopamine is the enemy. (laughs) It really is. And then we go on antidepressants, right? Not because of quite often, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are certainly people who have a chemical imbalance or born with a chemical imbalance, but usually we imbalance ourselves through our wanting, through our expectations, through our desires to acquire more, more fame, more sexual partners, more things, more money. And then, as he says, the brain evolved to reward us for for the behaviors that kept us alive and made us more likely to pass on our DNA. Mm. This may be an anachronism at least to some degree, but it is a fact of our lives nonetheless. So yes, we're still stuck with the caveman brain and the caveman impulses and the caveman dissatisfactions. The problem is we've mapped those dissatisfactions onto, do I need a new pair of sneakers? Do Mm -hmm. I need a new car? Yeah. Do I need a new pair of jeans? Oh, that new belt would look really nice. That new handbag Maybe that would satisfy me. We get those things and the satisfaction just washes off of them. In fact, then that object that we acquired, we look at and say, oh, not only am I not satisfied by this, but I'm actually dissatisfied by it and I want to get rid of it. Yeah. Enter minimalism. Yeah. All right, let's move on here to the next section. For the faithful, satisfaction has another name. Heaven. Hmm. (laughs) Many religions promise heaven to believers. Perpetual satisfaction. Yes. Oh my goodness. We rarely think carefully about what that entails. Harps and clouds? But the Roman Catholic Church is helpfully specific about it. Heaven grants us the, quote, beautific vision. God showing himself to us face to face, making us know his true nature and thereby granting us, quote, fulfillment of the deepest human longings, the state of supreme definitive happiness, or as the English mystic Juliana of Norwich wrote on heaven, of heaven, 
all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This makes me think of, uh, I think it's C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. Have you ever read that book? Or I've not do you read know the, about it. No, uh-uh. it's about a guy going to heaven. It's really fascinating because it's like it shows the um, the flaw in this forever being satisfied. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like and, it's 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 a really strange hope that I used to have. Like you know, as a um, ex Jehovah's Witness, that's the hope. Like you know, God comes back, He kills all the bad people, He creates a paradise on earth, and then you are forever experiencing bliss. Yes. And it sounds, the thought sounds good, but when you actually break it down and like pretend to live it out, it there, there's a flaw in it. I think the flaw is temporal. Mm. And what I mean by that is there's two ways to look at eternity, or at least two ways. Maybe mm. there are more. But we often think of eternity like as though it goes on and on and on and on. It's width versus depth. Yeah, There's an eternity within this moment. Eternity simply means without time. Yeah. And so back to your surfboard, when you're surfing, and you're in that flow state, and you've blocked out all the competition, all the wanting, all the desire, all the yearning, all the dissatisfaction, all the craving, mm-hmm. you've blocked these things out. That moment is eternal because it's without time. It's timeless. Mm. And so when we're talking about eternity, we can talk about going on and on and on in perpetuity, or we can talk about the depth of this moment. Mm. And I think it's just two different ways to look at it. He goes on to say, in other words, heaven is pure satisfaction that lasts. Mm. Why can't we seem to be so well on earth? The 13th century Catholic priest Thomas Aquinas answers this in his magisterial Summa Theology. He defines the satisfaction problem as one of misbegotten goals, idols that distract us from God, the true source of our bliss. Even if you are not a religious believer, Thomas's list of goals that beguile but never satisfy rings true. They include money, power, pleasure, and honor. As Thomas puts it, in the case of money, and the desire for wealth, And for whatsoever temporal goods, when we already possess them, we despise them and seek others. Mm. That's the thing, Ryan. We get it. And then the average American household, 300,000 items. And we despise it. We despise ourselves for accumulating all this junk. My house, my life, my mind is filled with clutter and all those things I wanted, Mm. I actually despise now. And instead of simply letting them go, I start to renounce them. That's where asceticism comes in or Spartanism. Mm. But if you renounce something, now you're forever tied to it the same way a hoarder is tied to it. And so minimalism can be the middle ground. Mm. It's about letting go, not rejecting the things, recognizing the things are useful but not needing them so much for our satisfaction. Thomas Aquinas goes on to say, the reason of this is that we realize more their insufficiency when we possess them. And this very fact shows that they are imperfect and the sovereign good does not consist therein. So I want to return to that line real quick, Ryan. The reason of this is that we realize more their insufficiency when we possess them. Mm -hmm. You get that new car and you realize it's not sufficient enough 
for your happiness. Yeah. And what I would append to this with is I, I would say that you'll realize it's actually too much for your happiness. Yeah. Because depending on that means you're not looking out in here. You're looking out here. If you're looking mm-hmm. inside, that's where you'll find the happiness. It's also where you'll find the dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find dissatisfaction in the car, but it might bring out that dissatisfaction that's inside you yeah. when you realize it did not pacify me. Yeah. Mm. In other words, it don't bring no satisfaction. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas might not fill a stadium with boomers, but he describes the Jaggerian dissatisfaction matrix far better than old Mick himself. The satisfaction problem then is our natural attachment to these inadequate things. If this sounds a bit Buddhist to you, it should. It is very similar to the Buddha's first noble truth that life is suffering, also translated as dissatisfaction. I've heard that quite a bit is we hear that life is suffering from the Buddha, but quite often that word dukkha is translated into dissatisfaction. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's neither suffering nor dissatisfaction. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah, it's like, yeah, like that word suffering when I, in in that saying specifically, I hold it very loosely. Like that word suffering has a, a different meaning to me than like how we usually use suffering. And the way that I reconcile it is I think about craving. Yeah, but, life is desire. Yes, yeah. yeah. And life is craving. It, that is neither good nor bad. Just is. And so we might even append it now that we have some some new ways, new language to talk about the essence of this. Life is instinct. Life is instinct. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. And so what is that instinct? Well, often it's craving. In fact, he goes on to say, and that cause of this suffering is craving, desire, and attachment to worldly things. Thomas Aquinas and the Buddha and Jagger, for that matter, were saying the same thing. Mm. Note that <laughs> neither Thomas nor the Buddha argued that worldly rewards are inherently evil. In fact, they can be used for great good. Money is crucial for a functioning society and supporting your family. Power can be wielded to lift others up. Pleasure leavens life. And honor can attract attention to the sources of moral elevation. But as attachments, as ends instead of means, the problem is simple. They cannot satisfy. So money cannot satisfy you. Mm -mm. Achievement cannot satisfy you. Yeah. All of your desires, your cravings, the material possessions, the new wardrobe, the new couch, the new dining table, the new Casper mattress yeah. cannot satisfy you. These things can make you comfortable. Mm-hmm. They can enhance your quality of life, but they will never satisfy you. Yeah. The article goes on to say, And this leads us back to my daughter's question. (laughs) Are we doomed in this earthly life, Mm. at least to an existence of continual dissatisfaction? If you ever visit Taiwan, the one attraction you must not miss is the National Palace Museum. Arguably the greatest collection of Chinese art and artifacts in the world. The museum contains roughly 700,000 items whose dates range from more than 8,000 years ago. Sounds like your old condo, Ryan. <laughs> Insert rim shot there, Professor Sean. 
<laughs> during the Neolithic period all the way to the modern era. If there is one problem with the museum, it is precisely its abundance. No one can take in more than a fraction of it with a single visit. That's why one afternoon a few years ago, I hired a guide to show me a few famous pieces and explain their significance. Little did I know that with one remark, my guide was about to help me crack my own satisfaction puzzle. All right, here it comes. We're getting to the climax. Yeah, I'm like so excited for this formula. Looking at a massive jade carving of the Buddha from the uh, from the Qing Dynasty, my guide offhandedly, I guess it'd be Zing Dynasty, my guide offhandedly remarked that this was a good illustration of how Eastern view, how the Eastern view of art differs from the Western view. So, the Eastern view of art is different from the Western view. Because of this uh, uh, Buddha carved out of jade. Yes. Okay. How so, I asked. He answered my question with a question. What do you think of when I ask you to imagine a work of art yet to be started? An empty canvas, I guess, I responded. Right, he said. Many Westerners tend to see art as being crafted from, some, from nothing. But there's another way to view it. The art already exists. Mm. And the job of artists is simply to reveal it. He told me that his image of art yet to be started was an uncarved block of jade, like what ultimately became the Buddha in front of us. The art is not visible until the artist takes away the stone mm -hmm. that is not part of the sculpture. But it is already there nonetheless. Mm. All that artistic philosophy fits this East versus West distinction. Oh, I'm sorry. Not all that not all artistic philosophy fits this East versus West distinction. Michelangelo once said, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. But I took my guide's point, as it were, in broad strokes. Yeah. Art mirrors life, and therein lies a potential solution to the dissatisfaction dilemma. As we grow older in the West... We generally think we should have a lot to show for our lives, a lot of trophies. Isn't that funny, Ryan? Like, oh, what have I done with my life? I haven't accomplished anything. Yeah. Because I don't have the trophies or the right trophies, the right accoutrements, the right amassing of, of accoutrements for my tomb. Or accolades, yeah. Yeah, because I'm going to fill my mausoleum with accolades. Right. How is that going to do anything for me? When I'm dead, I'm dead. Yeah. According to numerous Eastern philosophies, this is backwards. As we age, we shouldn't accumulate more to represent ourselves, but rather strip away to find our true selves and thus to find happiness and peace. The Tao Te Ching, a Chinese text compiled around the 4th century BC that is the foundation of Taoism, makes this point with elegance people would be content with their simple everyday lives in harmony and free of desire. When there is no desire, all things are at peace. Mm. In my early 50s, when I visited the National Palace Museum, my life was jammed with possessions, accomplishments, relationships, opinions, and commitments. 
It took an offhand remark from a museum guide to help me absorb the teachings of Thomas Aquinas and the Buddha, or for that matter, modern social science, and commit to stop trying to add more and more, but instead start taking things away. Mm. In truth, our formula, satisfaction equals getting what you want, leaves out one key component. To be more accurate, this formula should be satisfaction equals what you have divided by what you want. Mm. Let's pause on that for a moment. Yeah, I'm not sure I get that equation. So let's say that you have everything Jeff Bezos has. Yes. You have a million things, but you want a billion things. So it's what you have divided by what you want. Yes. 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 Now let's say, so you have a million things divided by a billion things. You're really dissatisfied. Yep. Because it's, it's not equal. But now let's say you have 10 things, but you want one thing. Yeah. Now you're, now you're like, now you're overly, yeah. Now you have abundance. Overabundance. Abundance. Yeah. And so satisfaction. <clears throat> it's a good equation. Here's how to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. It's to want less. It doesn't mean want nothing. It doesn't mean desire nothing. Right. It doesn't mean have no, account, no, no desire for accomplishment. It means that these cravings, which are induced by our biology, we then comport them, map them onto mm -hmm. the worldly desires of material possessions, relationships, etc. Yeah expectations. And so each of these, what you want side of the equation is what? And all it is is an expectation. Yeah. So here's a more concise way to look at it. Satisfaction is what you have divided by your expectations. Yeah. That's great. That's amazing. What a, yeah, it was worth reading all that to get to the climax. I mean, we can keep reading if you want, but that was totally worth it. We'll put a link to the article in the show notes so you can finish it. There are about eight pages left. So we're not going to read the whole thing. He gets back into it with his daughter. <laughs> he talks about how he has become much more satisfied by shedding not just his material possessions, but his opinions, yeah. his desire to impress other people. In fact, he talks about, and this is where I struggle the most, is the desire to be significant to mm, other people. Yeah. And how that becomes its own prison. Absolutely. In a way. It's funny how... It's with hindsight, you can kind of see how we did this. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing at the time. We just realized like, oh, wow, we're not, well, at least I did. I'm like, I'm not living with common sense. I'm not using common sense. Um, but yeah, with hindsight, it's like we were learning how to desire less. Yeah. And yeah. And through that, there is a, there is a great sense of um, peace when you, but the less you desire, the more peace you feel for sure. And so satisfaction to me is even the wrong word. Yeah. I like equanimity, equilibrium, mm -hmm. peace. These things denote a absence of dissatisfaction without the craving of satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And so you can be at peace when you've had enough water so that you're not thirsty. It doesn't mean that you are satisfied by the water. It just means you are not dissatisfied. Yeah. Let's, let's move on to some, we got some surprise questions. Before we get in there, though, how about the special announcement that we had on the 
minimal episode this week, Ryan. Yeah, man. TK Coleman will be joining us. Not just on, well, the private podcast is going to be amazing. Patrons, you are going to get so much yeah. for, and we're not raising the prices on you. Although you can you can up your tier if you want to join our live stream or the true fans and get our uh, we only have a thousand true fans we we cap the true fans at a thousand so a thousand people can watch our recorded live events basically yeah and so there are social spots available for that also the VIPs yeah. you will send you personalized videos messages once a year if you're interested in that but the core news here is TK Coleman is going to be on the show a whole lot more yeah and um, man I I'm can't excited. wait to have these discussions, these disagreements, yeah. these new viewpoints. He just brings a little bit more depth, I feel like. And maybe we can talk less now and just hand <laughs> it over to him. That's we'll <laughs> really what it is. I'm just like tired of talking so much. <laughs> Jordan, I'm going to have you get like those Homer Simpson bushes and Ryan and I will just back into them slowly right. over the next few episodes and it will just be TK Coleman right. eventually just talking on the podcast. Yep. But I can't wait. He'll be out here for episode 351. And as we've said... We're each week now, Mondays, you're not going to have to download a separate episodes. So you're not, you don't have to subscribe to the public podcast and the private podcast just every Monday. You know, I did the Monday thing, right? I was looking at data and very few podcasts publish on Mondays. Really? And it was, I was always so frustrated because my, my podcast feed on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays just f fills up. Mm -hmm. But then come Sunday, Monday rolls around. I'm like, man, I wish I had something to listen to. And the yeah. Monday pops around like there's nothing here. This would make so much sense. Let's start your week off with some simplicity. So if you're a private podcast subscriber, video version or the audio version, you'll get those on Monday. There'll be two plus hours every week. You don't have to download a separate snippet somewhere else. If you want shareable little bite-sized elements from that, mm -hmm. we'll have a clip every day on TikTok or Instagram that you can share with your friends and your family to get them on board with the podcast as well. Yeah. If you find something profound, Danny Unknown will tweeze that out and make us sound much more profound than we are now. Oh, and Professor Sean does all the uh, the transcribing now. I stopped doing the transcribing. <laughs> I mean, at this point, I'm just a deep fake. <laughs> I'm not even here right now. I wouldn't say you're that deep. <laughs> oh, you're so mean. Damn. <laughs> she got, Mallory missed a joke. She was trying to read the questions here. I was like, where's the laugh? Where's the laugh? Damn it, redo <laughs> it. <laughs> Thank you. Insert laugh. <laughs> All right. So um, some new segments here, Ryan. We talked about them a little bit on the minimal. I can't wait to get into these. Can we get Kike Hernandez out here? Not the player, but the bobblehead himself. <laughs> so, Ryan. Oh, here, I'll take it. You can well, hold it up on camera here. This... Is Kike Hernandez. Is this a gift for me? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, Danny Martinez. Yeah. Has Kike Hernandez bobblehead. Danny and his wife, Amy, are big. Oh, yeah. Fiance. Yeah. Soon to be wife. Right. They'll be able, they'll be able to have sex later this year. It's going to be awesome, <laughs> oh my Danny. God. <laughs> You're going to love it, man. You're going to love it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'll send you some videos to show you how. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> wow. Not of me. <laughs> Bex would not be happy about that. Oh, my God. Um. Anyway. Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This is a bobblehead doll. If you're watching the video version, if not, you're just watching or if you're listening to the audio version. So we're going to do this new segment called Amass It or Trash It, mm -hmm. where people... Uh, will call us up and they'll say, hey, I got this bobblehead of Kike Hernandez. Yeah. And I'm thinking about 
do I want to get rid of it? So Danny, tell me about this. Why, why are you thinking about getting rid of this? Why, why are you asking us whether or not you should amass it or trash it? Uh, I don't think, or see, I'm already leaning a certain way. I'm not sure. But this I is need good to, though. need to have it, I guess, displayed anymore. And why, then I'm why, like, why did you get it? What, why, um, yeah, why did you display it? So I actually went out of my way to get it. They gave those out um, before I lived out here. They uh-huh. had like a bobblehead game. Yeah. And so I went on Reddit. I was like, hey, anybody going to the game? Um, not want the bobblehead. This is my fa- he was my favorite player. He doesn't play on the Dodgers anymore. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted his bobblehead from the bobblehead giveaway. And uh, some dude was like, yeah, dude, I'll, I'll send it to you. Just uh, pay for shipping. So it was like 10 bucks, 15 bucks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was my favorite player at the time. Mm. And I wanted it. And it's like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be kind of sick. And I've had it for like three years, three or four years now. What mm. triggered you deciding to like, you know, I'm going to let go of this thing. Yeah. Well, one, he doesn't play for the team anymore. Yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah. So he's outgrowing the team in a yeah. way. Okay. Um. And then I have, I have two, I like, I, I've accumulated, I think I have two or three at home now. Yeah. So I was like, huh. Cause we have like our air conditioning unit in our studio loft and we've kind of put things up and displayed them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's like four bobbleheads on there. Do I need that many anymore? Yeah. Um, I relate with that. And then they all kind of, it's funny cause they're things, but they all kind of have like the emotional attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, because that one has like a cool story, right? Kike like came through the mail. Some dude linked up on Reddit. Right. Yes. Oh yeah, it's a cool. Like he's my favorite player. I shouted at him and he gave me a head nod. Like when I went to the game in Texas, it was you know. So there's like these attachments, but I'm like, do they serve me anymore? Mm. That's a great point. So our attachments are often created by the stories we tell ourselves. Yes. And so you have this supposed interesting story what's a, a and it becomes in a weird way a disempowering story because mm. it forces us to to hold on to the bobblehead and hold on to more things the bobblehead itself is not a problem mm-hmm. right right the problem is now you have a whole collection of them and let's say you amassed even more right mm-hmm. let's amass a hundred bobbleheads right or get them from past generations and minor league players. You could just keep going on and on and on, amassing a collection. What are you doing? You're actually watering down the sentimental meaning you've assigned to this because now you've assigned it to a hundred different or a thousand different bobbleheads. And we do that with all of our sentimental items. Yeah. And so this for Danny, it's not actually worth anything monetarily. I mean, maybe it's worth a few bucks. I don't know. And maybe you could sell it. Uh, but it's actually worth less and i mean that literally Mm -hmm. it's worth less than zero for you because it's taking up that space that is now it feels concerning it feels overwhelming it's just a tiny bit overwhelmed it's not like your whole life centers around this Mm -hmm. but there's just a little something here that's like man do i really want to hold on to this and when that question comes up i say i say uh trash it yeah yeah i mean yeah you mentioned the stories we tell ourselves so yeah there's like there's a story that is a really cool story. Like, thanks for sharing that. But you don't have to own that bobblehead to still have that story. Exactly. But I get it though. I get like it made me think of uh, um, the, like I have two German steins, and I had I had one. My grandma got me when I was like seventeen years old. She brought one back from Germany, and so like that was kind of like this sentimental thing that I use to like keep change and stuff. And then 
um, when I was at her house helping her pack up and move, she had to get rid of a bunch of stuff. And um, she had all these signs. I'm like, oh, I've really always admired your Stein collection. She's like, take them all. And I'm like, oh, I don't, but I don't want to have all those. Like, I don't have a space in my home for all those signs. Like the way she had it set up, it looked great, but I could not transfer that to my house. So I took one and I, but I still, I could still talk about that collection and uh, without actually having the collection, which I guess now that I have two, do I technically have a collection? <laughs> a three or more. Oh, okay. Perfect. That's the official rule. Perfect. I checked our perfect. rule book. Yeah. So, Danny, in a way, you by letting go of this, you actually will get more value from the few that you do have. Yeah, it's way less valuable to me right now. Mm -hmm. Because back then, I lived in Texas. I could never go to the stadium. I'd mm -hmm. have to come on a vacation, even get lucky with scheduling. Now I'm like 10 minutes from the stadium. I could go there and go to any bobblehead night I want now. Yeah, that's right. And that's not saying that, like, taking that granted or you know i'm spoiled in that way but like it meant more back then why am i still holding on to it now mm -hmm. it, i don't need to yeah and I'm, yeah. I'm thankful for i guess it's like the story i have but yeah it's not like i can't tell the story anymore it, yeah and and Thank what's you. funny is like this is probably the second time i've ever told the story it's not even like impactful <laughs> really right it, it's, it's not and because as soon as you start saying that story it's like it's not even that interesting right it's like yeah. So someone from Reddit sent you a bobblehead? Like, as soon as you start saying it that way, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess it isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. Like, I, was, I, was, I was creating this giant story in my head. Yeah. Although the truth is, like, yeah, it's someone from it. So I say trash it, but you could just put it back on Reddit. That's one way to trash it because Reddit's kind of trash anyway. <laughs> Depends on where you go. You got There are some parts you got to avoid on Reddit for sure. No, I think it's a cool story about, like, human interaction. Community. Well, yeah, what's cool is that's, like we went that's to pretty cool. we got gifted tickets like a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. We went and it was I was like, oh, it's a bobblehead, and I didn't even know. Mm. So we got two, and now I get to send. I'm like sending someone else, someone on Reddit. I have that one. I don't. Even, I'm not even going to keep it. Right. And he's like, oh, so it's like a circle. Hopefully, yeah. he can let yeah. go of it in like three years too. Right. Yeah. It, it, but that's the thing. He might get value from it. And it's great. It's not that someone else needs to let go of it, and I can't police anyone else's decisions here. But what I will say is that the real challenge going forward is going to those bobblehead nights and then not accepting the bobblehead at all. Yeah. And because you've recognized that this thing is not going to bring me the satisfaction that see, I wanted. See, we need to replace bobblehead with Ames chair night. And Josh could relate with it a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> hey, I just let go of my, I just sold my Ames chair. I know, chair. I know. I Look know. at that. Right. I've uh, but trashed think about it. How, but think about how there was a point in time where you're like, man, this is really beautiful piece i use it a lot it's mm -hmm. comfortable like there's a whole lot of you know aspects to it yes and you were able to let it go and so being willing to let go mm -hmm. helps make room for that satisfaction in a way not by way. amassing it by mm -hmm. shedding the thing that is bringing the dissatisfaction yeah a few other segments we talked about on the minimal but we'll just highlight them here we're going to start doing a, a segment called up for discussion where we really just talk about some discussion talks. Maybe it's something that is going on in a current event or something that's going on in the current event of Ryan's life or TK's life or my mm -hmm. life. And we can get insights from each other. Maybe we can de debate something. Hey, Ryan, I got this problem. Can I run it by you real quick? And I'll run it by you on the private podcast mm -hmm. because we're making that space for the private podcast. Or if we have Malabama who wants to talk about some or Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny, they, they have something that they want to discuss. Great. Bring it on here. We'll get, we'll queue up TK, have him uh, give his philosophical answer to that. 
Uh, advertisements suck. I want to. So if y'all have advertisements that you really think suck, send them in to us on Patreon. You can DM to to us. I'd love to amass some really terrible advertisements that. I was like, why the? And it doesn't have to be like cheesy, like Sham Wow or something like that. But like, maybe this advertisement sucks because it's so compelling. It really mm. makes me want to buy this Lexus mm. or this Rolex or this dress or mm. this Gucci bag or whatever it might be. That sucks too because it's creating it's creating that craving. Mm. It's using that innate desire for the consumer purchases. Mm. Uh, obsolete things. I was talking to Gemma over on Patreon and she said, you know, you guys made me realize things like deodorant, fabric softener, dryer sheets, cashews, Wi-Fi at home. I might be just better off without these things. Yeah, what, what, what I started to notice is like all the um, the things that I would keep in my shower. So I'd try like a face wash and it didn't like work out so well, but I'd still keep it in there. Yes. And I had like eight different things going on in the shower. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I use like two of these. Mm-hmm. But because I spent a little bit of money, like I, I, I couldn't let it go. But like finally, like now there's like four things in our shower and it feels amazing. I, I felt I was the same way when I moved. I had a drawer and I had a, several different like little face creams mm-hmm. that I did use Yeah, at, with every, within every 30 days. So it certainly fit within the 90, 90 rule. But mm-hmm. it was like, wait, do I need four different ones? Right. No, I actually don't. I mean, Chrissy probably does because she works she, with different yeah, clients, with right. different people. But even then, I bet, Chrissy, you use uh, 80, 20, 20% of your products. Actually, it's probably more like 10% of your products get used 90% of the time. And there's like the other 90% that's like this, just these specialty yeah. things that... But that's, can, yeah. Her, her day job is literally um, making sure that she can customize things with those specialty items. Right. So it's like important for, for Chrissy to have those things. Yes. And then for me and you, it's not. Right. Exactly. I don't need 14 <laughs> things in my shower. Right. And Just seven. <laughs> That's no, happiness. I've, I've realized <laughs> that like, yes, you know, so we, we moved in this new house and we have a house and the garage is turned into like a back house. And mm-hmm. the garage back house is my house essentially. Mm-hmm. And I've realized that Ella and Bex are just total hoarders. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but not really, right? It's, that's my perception. It's like, oh, you have things that aren't useful to me. Mm -hmm. And so here's the thing. They're not hoarders. Mm -hmm. If I had their things, I would be a hoarder. Right. And that's what we need to understand. If I had Chrissy's makeup bag, it would be hoarding something. Oh, I'll hold on to this just in case. But it would actually get in the way. What is not clutter for her creates clutter for me and vice versa. And so we have to, we have to understand our own individual circumstance there uh, because someone else owns something, gets value from it, doesn't mean that I will mm-hmm. as well. Some other, uh, oh, one other thing. I'm going to start on Patreon. I'm going to start posting and hopefully Ryan TK will participate in this as well. Especially with the move, I've noticed I've taken a few different little photos <laughs> here. It's so funny because my, my apartment is so unphotogenic. <laughs> like you have, like you have, a, a like, you always make the joke about people would walk into your house and they wouldn't necessarily know that a minimalist lives there. But I disagree. I think you walk in your house, you're like, oh, a minimalist lives here. If you came to the back house, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but which, which is great. And it's like something I admire. But like with me, it's not the, I've never really gone after the aesthetic. So like, um, I mean, I'm happy to take pictures of my stuff, but I'm just trying to prepare the patrons for something I'm very... Um, I'm trying to set the bar low here for myself. That's great. (laughs) I'm doing the same thing with me. So what I did is I took photos of like, oh, look, here's everything I own. Here's all my boxes. Like I'm trying to like as I was moving in. And so I want to share some of these with y'all. So you see that it's not always 
Yeah, I mean, some most of the time, once my house is together, it looks like a, a luminaire showroom. Mm-hmm. So I don't look, I don't associate that with minimalism per se. But mm. there's intentionality behind it. That's why I say, if you walked in my house, you wouldn't say I'm a minimalist. You say, oh my god, he's really tidy. Mm-hmm. It's because it's not like you're wa- walking into a ashram or you know, some sort of sanctuary or something. Mm. It's a normal living room, you know, that you would see it like design within reach or something. And so it just doesn't have a bunch of excess stuff, but there is also, and this is your point that I have, I pay more attention to the design aspects, Mm -hmm. the, the surface level things Mm -hmm. on top of the foundation. Yeah. Right. And it's beautiful, man. Like you do a great job with it. Thank you. I, I'm, and so what we'll do is we'll share some of that, but we'll also share the warts of like, oh no, when I moved to this new house, I can't believe the ugly blue cabinets in the, our kitchen are, mm. they're hideous. Uh, okay, well, let's take a look at it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's all right here on display. So we're going to talk about that each week on the new version of the podcast. Starting episode 351, you're going to love this format, patrons. And you also have access to all the archives, if you'd like. Uh, you can dive back uh, audio version of all the archives on Patreon or in your RSS feed as well. Alabama, I've got some surprise questions here, but do we have any questions from the Patreon live stream? We do. We have a question here from Selena. She says, there's so much talk of growth and personal development that I feel so far behind at 33. Can I be happy and socially mediocre or am I really behind? Hmm. I was just talking to Mariah about this yesterday about how I feel like I, I really love my life. Um, I feel like I have a really good foundation and I want to like, you know, I talk about creating more with like comedy or whatever it is that like always pops up, but like I've not put a whole lot of doing into it, a lot of action behind it. And I beat myself up over it where I'm like, dude, like you're just so lazy, man. Like just, you know, start, start doing X. Right. And then, um, there is, but there is something to say about learning how to do nothing and being okay with doing nothing. It doesn't mean that that's all you do is nothing, but there is something where um, we do live in this culture of like get things done and uh, you know the hustle culture and you know always be growing and all of these things where that that's great if that's how your mind works, but we feel like that's how our minds should work mm-hmm. and there are no shoulds. So yeah, I get that. Like there is a, I, 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 I beat myself up for it. Um, there's a, it's funny. We were at a 4th of July parade yesterday uh, up in Ojai and we were watching the, the sort of you know, the procession or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. just sort of flow through town. There's all of these, people and then i noticed like the, the local ojai theater troupe there and i'm like oh and bex looking at me she goes i bet you ryan could get in a play there <laughs> yeah like right now right <laughs> and the reason i bring this up the reason you don't do the stand-up comedy right now or whatever else you're you have that slight desire to do mm-hmm. is you're not compelled enough by it yeah it, it yeah and there's also a comfort level to it as well it, yeah but the, the comfort level doesn't matter if you're compelled and and what I mean by that is mm-hmm. if you're compelled enough, you'll do things. I mean, Ryan, you broke your back mm-hmm. snowboarding. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you were compelled to snowboard, right? Sure. And so anyone who finds the thing that is most compelling to them, they go and do. I wouldn't worry about the mediocrity piece of it, though. Mm-hmm. Mediocrity is individual opinion and it is a societal construct. Yeah. But see, this is where this is where I start to beat myself up. 
is that what you're saying is, is like, well, you're just not compelled enough to do something. And that is where we start to really get trapped in this thought cycle of like, I'm, I'm a piece of garbage because there's nothing that is compelling me to do more than what I already do. Because you feel like you should be compelled to do something. Exactly. And what I'm trying to say is that's nonsense. There is nothing that you should be compelled to do, but there are things that you can find to be compelling. And but, but not everyone needs, not everyone is, is compelled the same way. So like, no, they're not right. So there are some people who are like so compelled, like they just can't not do something. But there are other people who have nothing in their life that they can't not do. I disagree. But okay. Everyone is compelled. Everyone eats every day. Yeah. I mean, I but mean here's I'm, my point. Yeah. The, the, the food thing is no one's like, well, I just don't feel compelled to eat. Uh, I'm going to become a breatharian, right? No one does that. And yet there are always, and by the way, we're all creative in some way. Sure. The reason we get so caught up is we think we're supposed to be creative in the ways that society has dictated to us. Yes. And, and that's what I mean by compelled. Like, yes, we I mean, there are these natural instincts that we have that we're compelled to breathe and drink and eat. Um, but yeah, in the creative sense is when I say like not everyone has a compulsion, something that they can't not create. I mm -hmm. mean, some people just I mean, I'm not saying that those people will never create. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying this formula of, well, you're just, if you're not compelled enough to do it, just then don't do it. Like that is a, I mean, I think that's again, where I think where she is, where she's like not yeah. compelled enough, but, but a little bit compelled, if that makes any sense. Sure. Or interested maybe is a better way of looking yes, at it. Yes. If someone's interested, that's fine. But if it's compelling enough, you'll do it. If you're not compelled, I, I'm not compelled to do stand-up comedy. And mm -hmm. so I don't do it. Right. Mm -hmm. I, do I have some sort of minor interest in it? Maybe once upon a time, sure, but like yeah. basketball, like I found it compelling at one point in time. Mm -hmm. I don't anymore. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. When we moralize this and say, oh, it's a bad thing if I'm not compelled. That's right. when, we, when we start feeling miserable. That's when we start to feel mediocre. Yeah. Uh, mediocre. And yes. Yeah. And then we beat ourselves up because, yeah, we're, we're moralizing it. Yes. We're yeah. all mediocre. And so that's fine. Mm -hmm. Me Because why? We're all mediocre in someone else's eyes. Right. Michael Jordan is mediocre to someone. Right. And and so, by the way, he's mediocre in to most people in other areas of life. Like he's a mediocre golfer. Right. Right. <laughs> and so that doesn't is that a bad thing? No, of course not. Right. In fact, you want mediocrity in or below mediocrity in most of your life. Sure. So that you can focus on the things eventually that you become compelled by. Not that you should do anything. Not that if you're not compelled, don't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling you to do something or to not do it. It's not even about the doing. Mm -hmm. It's what the Taoists would call <clears throat> effortless action. Mm -hmm. Because when you are compelled, it doesn't feel as though I need discipline. Yeah. It doesn't feel as though I need to do it. It's simply that I do it and it doesn't feel like it requires the same effort. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but in the same token, it also sounds like, you know, the whole, like, if you find something you'd love to do, you never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. And like, we, you know, we were talking about that on a previous podcast about how that's kind of BS. Like, there's always going to be a little bit of work to be done. Yeah, I'm not talking about work. What, what I'm talking about is whatever you're compelled by. It doesn't have to be your vocation. Sure. I'm saying I'm talking about how you spend your days. The reason yeah, that, yeah. that she feels so behind. Mm -hmm. What's her name? Selena. Okay. The reason that Selena feels so behind has to do with the societal opinions that if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then you are right. mediocre. Yes. And I'm right. saying that 
If you're not compelled to do X, Y, and Z, sure, you're mediocre. So what? Right. Yeah. Own it. Mm-hmm. I remember we had uh, Jeanette McCurdy on the podcast. We were talking. She was like, I'm just so afraid that what I write is going to be trash. I'm mm-hmm. like, it is. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. It's going to, and it was hard to grasp because we don't like to be told, like, we want everything that comes off our pin to be beautiful or whatever. It's like, well, no, it's going to be trash to someone right. regardless. Yeah. There are people who dislike David, Fo- like, strongly dislike David Foster Wallace's writing right. or Jonathan Franzen's writing or uh, Cynthia Ozick's writing, or, you know, insert writer here. It's mediocre to them. Why? Because it's just an opinion. Mm -hmm. And if you're creating, doing, whatever, just to appease other people, to fulfill their opinion, Mm -hmm. man, talk about a recipe for dissatisfaction. 100%. All right, Ryan, I figured it out. All right, man. This is the perfect amount of clothes. Okay. For a minimalist to own. Okay. Wait, so, is there is there a question about clothing? No. Oh, this okay. is a topic. Okay. And so there was sort of a question. I, I when I was moving, mm-hmm. I posted a, a photo. I had packed all of my clothes, and so many people were so amazed that all my clothes fit into one moving box. Yeah. And that, to me, is the precise amount of perfect clothes. Even with all the jackets? For me. Yeah. The it's jackets. It's a big box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's the size of this room. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, I mean, it was, I, I don't own many clothes. And it's yeah. fascinating to me when mm-hmm. people are looking for a specific number. Like, how many t-shirts do you own? I mean, you right. get that question all the yeah, time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're always wearing that black t-shirt, mm-hmm. right? And the honest answer for me is I own a box of clothes. I don't count how many clothes I have. Mm-hmm. I own two pairs of jeans. I own, I think, three pairs of shoes. I own a drawer full of t-shirts. Mm-hmm. I own a drawer full of underwear. Mm-hmm. A drawer full of drawers. <laughs> Isn't that just what a dresser is? <laughs> <laughs> and so, for me, the perfect amount of clothes mm-hmm. is is that box. One and, box. You know, it was fascinating. One box of happiness. It forced me. A fulfillment. It forced me to remove a few pieces that wouldn't fit in the box. Yeah. Because, I'm, oh, I got an extra sweatshirt here. Oh, I do wear that. It fits within the 90-90 rule, the minimalist rule book, which mm-hmm. you can download for free, theminimalists.com slash rule book, mm-hmm. if you want the 16 rules for living with less. And yet, even though it fits within that rule... We have a 17th rule, thanks to our good friend Joshua Becker. Just because you use a thing doesn't mean you need to own it. Mm -hmm. And I had a sweatshirt that was just on a hanger. I'm like, yeah, I wear that probably once a month. Man, but if I got rid of it, would I still be fine? Of course, I'd still be fine. So I'm going to let go of that. Maybe someone else can get value from it if I donate it. Yeah, More value than what I'm getting right now. It doesn't mean I want to own no clothes. It doesn't mean this is the appropriate amount of clothes for someone else. But what I've recognized is that boundary of having one box of clothes or one drawer full of t-shirts. Mm-hmm. If I buy another t-shirt now, maybe it's too many yeah. because it won't fit in the drawer anymore. And I'm not going to go out and buy another dresser just to accommodate one or two new t-shirts. And so for me, I recognize this. People kept DMing me when I posted this picture and they're like, so is that, are those all the clothes you wear? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, but what about that? What is this? What about this? What about as though I'm prescribing that you should have this as well. Mm -hmm. So Ryan, what's the perfect amount of clothes for you? I don't know, man. I snowboard. So I'm going to probably need two boxes. I would think, I mean, just the, 
the jacket and the snow pants and the boots and all that. I mean, that alone fits in a box. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. I think I don't think there's a perfect amount. I think there is a constant deliberation of, you know, my wardrobe and some, you know, I've had a thing that I wore, a pair of pants that I used to wear. Mm-hmm. And I came across it the other day. I'm like, wait a minute, I don't wear these anymore. And I put them in the donation box. So there mm-hmm. are literal seasons uh, for things, but then there's also like seasons of life for things. I have not let go of my parachute pants though from the fourth <laughs> grade. I'll never let them. the hammer pants. Kidding. Yeah, kidding, man. <laughs> Here's went, the, my dad wouldn't let me wear parachute pants. Oh, oh. <laughs> I was too worldly. You're rebelling now. With, he has parachute pants on right now. Exactly. <laughs> parachute dish. <laughs> and so I will say this though all of the clothes in that box didn't have any visible logos. Mm-hmm. That's something that, because I don't want to pay a brand more money in order to advertise their product for them and also to exclude other people, right? Like, look at me. I have the swoosh logo or the whatever other pony on my shirt. Mm -hmm. That puts me on a small pedestal above someone who doesn't have a pony on their shirt, Mm -hmm. right? Now, it's not to say that I don't wear name brand clothing. I do. I just don't go out of my way to display that for the world because what works well for me may not work well for you. And Mm -hmm. so if two boxes or two drawers or two dressers is appropriate for you, the question then becomes, what is an intentional amount of clothes? Mm -hmm. How many clothes do I need? And when does it become too much? When do these clothes Mm -hmm. start to get in the way? Mm -hmm. Because we all have that decision fatigue. Remember back in our corporate days, Ryan, we would just which tie of the 70 ties I own am I going to wear today? Yeah. Which dress... I had seven... I had 100 ties. I had 70 dress shirts. I mm-hmm. Don't ask why. Because mm-hmm. I don't know why. <laughs> I couldn't give you an honest answer other yeah. than I was really dissatisfied with my life and I was trying to somehow bring satisfaction in by accumulating more things. It's funny because I always went back to the same like three outfits like as far as like shirt, tie, suit combination like there, and shoes. Like there were three specific... I was like, oh yeah, I got to wear one of these today. Yes. Like, I haven't worn this in a week or two weeks. I got to wear this again. But then I look back, I'm like, why didn't I just wear those three outfits that I really liked? Right. Because, oh, I have to wear this. And you never felt as good in that. It was like the B tier clothes as Mm -hmm. you do in the A tier clothes. And the nice thing about being a minimalist is all of my clothes now are my favorite clothes. Because if they're not, I let them go. And so if there is a perfect number of clothes, I think it's probably 33. (laughs) And that's because our friend Courtney Carver started Project 333. Yeah. And... It's an arbitrary number. She'll tell you that. But the nice little sequence of numbers, the numerology there in 333 is beautiful. And Mm -hmm. the best dressed people who come to our live events whenever we're out on tour, they tend to be the Project 333 people. Mm -hmm. And so the way that works, you can find it. I think it's project333.org. And basically, you pick 33 items. Mm -hmm. And for three months, so 333, you wear those 33 items. That includes everything from accessories, I think even underwear, your shirts, your hats, your shoes, whatever it might be. Having 33 items and you radically attenuate the amount of clothes you wear. And so what do you do? It forces you to pick the things that are most versatile, Mm -hmm. the things you enjoy the most, and you set aside those things you don't enjoy at all. And the interesting thing is when you run out of clothes, You can always go shopping in your own closet as well. Mm. Shopping through your wardrobe. Instead of going to the store and spending more money, take a look at what you have in your closet. And if you haven't worn it in the last three months, and be honest with yourself, you're not going to wear it in the next three months, you can give yourself permission to not just let go of it, but to get it out of the way. 
so that your closet and your life feels a lot calmer. Ryan, I um, finally figured out what it means to live every day like it's your last. <laughs> so I always thought this was terrible advice until very recently. And yeah. let me talk about why. Because it, yeah. my old self thought that live every day like it's your last was like some hedonistic thing. Like, let's go out. Let's get messed up. Let's get you know, whatever. Let, I need all the pleasure. I need the fire hose of emotion and pleasure. And joy. it's my last day. We might as well celebrate. Mm-hmm. That would be a recipe for misery if you did that every day, right? Yeah, of course. So what would the fire hose of hedonism look like to your 25-year-old self, Ryan? Yeah. If you lived every day like it was your last when you were 25. Drugs, alcohol, women. Like that's, that is what I would focus on. My 25-year-old self would focus on. And if it truly was your last day, I would understand why you would want to do that at age 25. Right. And, you know... How, how someone would choose to live their last day is going to be different for everyone. And I don't think there's a right or wrong way to look at it. Um, I, I don't know if it's good or bad advice, but like now I think about living my last day, it would be, it would be like a, a day of like, just like appreciating things that have happened in my life and what I have and like ruminating in the, in the, um, yeah, just the life that I've built for myself. Yes. I, I would say when we talk about love, I'm often saying, to love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. Mm-hmm. The key there is to see them, actually see them, not just with eyesight, but with your heart, to see them, to accept them, to understand them without trying to change them. And so to live every day like it's your last means to actually experience that day, mm. not constantly planning for the future that is never going to arrive. Mm-hmm. Not constantly staring at the rear view, looking at the past, the past mistakes, the past successes, whatever was going on back then, because it takes us out of the present moment. To live every day like it's your last really means to show up today and actually see things for how they are, to accept things. It doesn't mean that we won't get better over time. It doesn't mean that it is wrong to improve yourself. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to achieve. But when we're constantly striving, we're not seeing whatever's going on in front of us right now. Mm. And so I just thought it was fascinating. I've been thinking about this a lot, about what would I do if this was my last day on earth? And I would show up and, and actually witness it. Mm-hmm see it for what it is yeah. without being blinded by the past, yeah. without being blinded by the future. I'm reminded of one of my favorite books is a book called Angels by Dennis Johnson. Mm-hmm. Malik, I'm sure you've read Angels at some point. No, it's one of my favorites, so I'm going to ruin it for you. I apologize. The climax of, the, by the way, fast forward two minutes if you don't want to hear this. The climax of the novel, main character's name is Bill Houston. This is weird. I haven't read it since I was in my 20s, but it just stuck with me. It was so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's his last day on earth, he's been convicted Mm. of murder Mm. and he's going to the electric chair Mm. and they're walking him to the electric chair. And he recognized how unfair this moment is Mm. because everything he actually sees now, Mm. whether it's the blue, the bluest blue he's ever seen in the sky, Mm -hmm. out the little tiny barred window or he sees a bird fly overhead or the mountains in the Colorado distance. Yeah. And he sees them 
actually sees them for the first time. Mm. And he's not thinking about where he's going to be tomorrow because he won't be here tomorrow. Yeah. He's finally living his life like it's his last day. Not because he's striving or hedonistic, but he's seeing everything around him. Mm -hmm. And the reason I brought this up, Ryan, is I, when I moved recently, I was beginning to lament the condo that I was moving out of. We were mm -hmm. living in West Hollywood, a really nice condo. It was yeah. real simple. And I enjoyed living there a lot. But I took a lot of it for granted. Like, we take everything for granted. Like, yeah. simple things like the exit sign or the signage out front. We don't see it. We tune it out. We label it and dismiss it mm -hmm. so that we can ruminate on achievements or needing more, whatever it might be. And instead, I, as I was spending my last week there, it was like I was on a, a sort of death row of sorts because mm -hmm. that part of my life was dying. Mm -hmm. No longer was I going to see the same things again. End of a chapter, man. And it allowed me to see them. Yeah. In a way that I wouldn't have otherwise seen them. But we can do that right now. We can see the simplicity that's all around us. Yeah. The door handle, the bird, the child laughing, the dog barking in the background, whatever it is, we can see it right now. Mm. That's what it means to live every day like it's your last. Even if you had like a list of 100 things, I mean, you couldn't do all 100 things. So it's like the more you desire to do on your last day, like you almost, like for me, I would just see the things I didn't get to do. You know, if I, if that's, if, if my attitude was like just trying to be as hedonistic as possible, like, and that was that bucket list thing we talked about yeah. earlier in the private podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I fulfill the bucket list, even if you had one year left to live, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's never going to be enough when it becomes hedonistic. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with pleasure, but that pursuit of pleasure is not actually living in the moment. It's yeah. craving some future outcome. It's funny because Mariah and I, we, the, the apartment we live in now, it was kind of like the best of the options that we had. There's a funny thing in LA. It's like you have this, you have this um, lease and if you want to move, you can't find a place too early because then you got like double payments, double rent payments. You can't find a place too late because you got to be out by a certain time. So like we ended up getting this place that I'm really happy with. And I have always like if when we moved in there, I'm like, this is temporary. Like, I don't really want to like be here. This is just kind of like with, you know, given the resources and the things that we have, like this is where we're at and we're going to move. And like we've been looking at moving lately. And it's funny because when I think about leaving the place we're at now, I'm like, wait a minute. Like there's like a beauty to this place. Like there's a beautiful community. And like it's got this like really cool, like, you know, really like like 50s modern feel. If that makes It's not Art Deco, but I mean, there's just like a cool vibe to it that like when I think about leaving it I'm like oh I actually don't want to leave this place like I really like it you're appreciating it now like, seeing it for what it is yeah I want to do our first episode with when we bring TK Coleman on mm -hmm. as our new co-host we want to talk about having funerals so one thing I did in the apartment I moved out of is I had a funeral for it mm -hmm. last night I was there mm -hmm. and it was a beautiful little individual personal ceremony mm -hmm. and I was talking to TK about it on the He's phone. He's lit it on fire and left. <laughs> Not a Viking funeral. Right. <laughs> TK was actually headed to a funeral. One of his friends got killed. Oh, wow. In Chicago. And he was headed to a funeral. And so what I recognized is that 
We have a funeral, not for the person who died, but so that we can let go. Yeah. And I had a funeral for the home that I lived in the last five years. Yeah. I had a funeral for it, not for the place, Mm -hmm. but so that I could let go. Well, why? So I could move forward. Mm. Ryan, we got some surprise questions we should answer today. All right. How about Tina's question, Alabama? I have an expansive collection that I've outgrown and no longer enjoy. Is it worth trying to sell it, even if I don't think anyone else would want it? So we were dealing with Danny's bobblehead earlier on this private episode here. This is really where where I'm going to appreciate the live callers because we can ask for more information. Yeah, yeah. What is it a collection of? Is it a collection of bobbleheads? Right. Is it a collection of bottle caps? Right. Like, yeah. I want to understand your collection. I want to understand the motivations behind that collection. Mm -hmm. I also want to understand, is it clutter? Now, what is clutter? Clutter means something is getting in the way. Right. So something that is clutter for Ryan might not be clutter for me. Right. Mm -hmm. But if he owned all of my underwear, which are size medium, Mm -hmm. they'd be clutter for him because they would be really snug. That's right. Super snug. Yeah. And so what I realized is like, Yes, if I just handed him all of my underwear, it would totally be clutter. But for me, I have the appropriate amount of underwear for my life. And so I want you to understand your collection. You say it's an expansive collection. If you're asking the question, one of two things is happening. Either it's bothering you enough to ask the question, which Mm -hmm. is more likely than not. Or two, other people are bothering you and telling you, you shouldn't have a collection like that, and it's Mm. making you think that you shouldn't. Mm. Well, there are no shoulds. And so hold on to the collection if you want. If you feel like it's adding value to your life, if you're doing it intentionally, wonderful. Why would you get rid of something that is adding value to your life? Right. But if it has become clutter, it may have not been clutter a year ago, two years ago, 10 years ago, but if it is clutter today, that is a sign to start to let go. I don't mean... Let go of the whole thing, trash the whole thing, although that's one way you can handle it. But maybe simply calling the collection, having a funeral for the things Mm. that are no longer serving you might actually enable you to enjoy pieces of that collection much much more. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I I just want to give props to Tina for like, just recognizing and admitting. I mean, she's like, I have an expansive collection that I've outgrown and no longer enjoy. So like just being able to see that with your collection that you obviously have put time and effort into. Yeah. Like that's a pretty big step. So it it sounds like she's asking like how to let go of this. And Mm. what I'll say is whatever collection it is, there's probably someone out there who will at least take it off your hands for free. Yes. And I'm willing to, there's probably someone who would pay a little bit of money for it. So um, you may not think that there's someone out there, but I guarantee you there's someone. I mean, on Craigslist, we had like, I, you know, we moved uh, in Montana. We had some boxes from uh, usedcardboardboxes.com. We were done with them. I'm like, I'm not going to hoard these boxes. So then I was like, put them on Craigslist. Like anybody need cardboard boxes? They were gone in like an hour. Immediately, was, yeah. yeah. Immediately, yeah. And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, man, I don't know who's going to just take a bunch of cardboard boxes, but it's like someone else who wants to move or in Tina's case, someone else who is interested in the same thing she used to be interested in. Yeah. How about we do one more At least one, maybe two more questions here. Eden has a question for us. How do you deal with the awkwardness of outgrowing something that's still in your life, like a relationship you can't completely cut ties with? Mm, Again, need more information. I I mean, when I think about this is like, um, 
like I think a lot of friends that I used to have were like my party hanging friends. And there's a couple that I'll keep in touch with because there was a deeper connection than just partying. But our relationship looks much different now. And that's okay. Um, so again, I would need more information. But for me, it's about altering how you treat that relationship. You don't necessarily have to cut ties, but maybe you have to like uh, broaden the relationship or uh, maybe like let go, like st- stop holding on to it so tightly. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe you haven't outgrown that person. You've outgrown the context of that relationship. Yeah, right. In our first book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, we talk about the three different types of relationship mm-hmm. in our lives. We have the immediate or primary relationships in our life. Usually it's like the handful of people to whom you're closest with. Mm-hmm. Family, best friend, children, parents perhaps, although even parents tend to fall in the secondary tier over time as we disconnect our our childhood attachment from them, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have the primary relationships, then we have the secondary relationships, and then we have the peripheral or the tertiary relationships. It's like concentric circles, basically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at those concentric circles, what it might mean is you had someone who was a primary relationship in your life. It doesn't mean you have to cast them out altogether, although you can. If it has become a toxic relationship, maybe they're toxic, or maybe it's just the relationship itself is toxic. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can cast out that relationship. You can declutter that type of relational clutter mm-hmm. as well. However, I reject the part of the question where it says you can't cut ties with someone. Of course you can. Right. You can always cut ties with someone. Yeah, I want to know why she feels like she can't t- cut ties. Yeah. Like that's that's the biggest question I have. Because I agree, like you absolutely can cut ties, but there's something there that, yeah, I need more information on. Yes. And so there's always a way to cut ties or it might just be that you need to reprioritize the relationship. I've had people that I have dated who are no longer in my primary circle. They, in mm-hmm. fact, they might be in the tertiary circle and we get along really well. Why? Because we reconstituted the relationship. Mm-hmm. We didn't abandon each other completely and say, oh, I'm never going to talk to you again. Mm-hmm. Screw you. I hate you. Whatever it is. No, we just mm-hmm. redefined the relationship. Well, and, and conversely, there are relationships that you had and I had where they didn't want to reconstitute it. They demanded it to be one way. And you were like, I'm sorry, it can't be that way anymore. And then they're like, fine, well, then I'm out of your life. And it's like, okay, like, then that's how it has to be. Yes. But for you to, for you to try and maintain the same relationship that's making you miserable is, um, that's not good to either party. Yeah. Let's do a question here from Debbie. How do I make peace with and move forward from friendships that were outgrown a long time ago? Social media always leaves an open door to reach back out and try to reconnect. You know how glad I am I'm not on Facebook and I don't have to like see all of the high school people I went to school with, dude. Like, Uh, I didn't real, like, I know exactly what they're talking about. mm -hmm. Because I would see people from high school and like what they're up to. And then I start comparing myself and I'm like, wait a minute, like, that we weren't even good friends in high school. It's just that we 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 know each other's name. Mm-hmm. So now we're friends on Facebook and now I'm confronted on a daily basis with what they're doing with their life, which makes me question what am I doing with my own life? Yes. Um I mean getting I would say get off of social media. That's my that's my observation that I did because it was I mean there are a lot of reasons why I got off of Facebook, but um that was one of them for sure. And if you don't want to go that far, you can also simply declutter your friendships. Yeah. You can yeah. declutter your online relationships. Here's mm-hmm. what I mean by that. Unfollow people from your past that you no longer have a close relationship to. If you feel 
if you follow someone just because you feel like you're supposed to follow them, you're holding on to the residue of the past. Mm. That's not a compelling reason to actually follow them, to interact with them. Mm -hmm. Because why? If you're staying stuck in the past, then you're not going to make room for the new perspectives that you're going to get today, tomorrow, etc. And so I found that I remember when we first left the corporate world, I unfriended everyone on Facebook Mm. whom we worked with in the corporate world. And I had a few people reach out and ask why. Mm -hmm. And you know what I told them? Hmm. Nothing. I don't explain myself. Mm -mm -mm. I don't don't owe you an explanation. Right. And I know that's uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. But if I decided to re-follow you in the future, or if you unfollow me, you don't owe me an explanation either. Yeah. And it's okay. Don't explain yourself. Don't feel compelled to explain yourself. You really actually feel compelled. Fine. It's not that you don't have, it's not that you have to not explain yourself. Yeah. But you aren't forced. You are not required. In order to be someone's former friend, you don't have to explain yourself. Yeah. You have only so much time. You know, the Dunbar number is 150, mm. meaning like you can only remember 150 relationships. But the close prox- the close relationships that in proximity, it's much smaller. It's like 10. Yeah. And so we don't have the bandwidth. So every time you declutter an old friendship, you're actually making room for new, open-minded people with whom you can flourish, thrive, grow, live coexist, etc. Yeah. It's interesting because like my mind goes to like, what's the compassionate approach to those people who feel now they feel like they've been abandoned for and they want a reason why. And there, you know, there is something for me where I would look at like, okay, what's the compassionate response to this? But there's also certain times in life when like, it's better to actually not have that, that compassionate approach where you actually have to set, you know, set a, a lineup or a wall up that's like, no, like this is, this is where I'm at, you know? Yeah. Well, um, for me, yeah, it was self, it was about self-compassion. Yeah. I was having, the reason I decluttered the social media friends was to have compassion for myself, mm. to see myself where I was. And I knew that I couldn't keep holding on to the past because it was preventing me from being who I wanted to be. Mm. And can it come off as callous to other people? Sure. It can come off as anything to them. Yeah. I can't control how it comes off to them. Right. I know that it wasn't about them, though. It was about my ability to move forward. Mm -hmm. And that meant letting go of many of my past relationships. Yeah. You know what? Let's do one more just for fun. (laughs) How about Leanne's question? How do you deal with being the person who was outgrown Does this make you immature or just no longer compatible with the other person? Ryan, have you ever been outgrown? Has someone moved on past you? I think so. I can't remember who, but there are certainly like friendships that I realized I was like, oh, like they don't see this friendship the same way I see it. And that was okay. I mean, uh, yeah, there are people like I used to really enjoy hanging around. And then the more and more I realize, I'm like, oh, like they're not going out of their way to hang out with me. Mm. And um, I ultimately, you know, wish them happiness. And if me not being in their life makes them happy, then, you know, I've found a way to kind of, that's how I hold it now. Mm. Um, Yeah, I could specifically think of like one relationship that happened like in my early 20s where I was like, I, I was almost like, what did I do wrong? And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I just have a completely different lifestyle than this person. And they, they they don't agree with my, you know, my lifestyle. So they're, 
not hanging out with me as much. And I'm like, yeah, like I'm either, do I change my lifestyle? Like, no, I'm not gonna change my lifestyle for someone. Mm-hmm. I would change it for myself, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how I hold it. It's like, oh, great. Like me not being in their life makes them more content, makes them more happy. If that's the contribution I can make towards their happiness is accepting the fact that they no longer want to be my friend, then that's, I'll accept that. That's a rather mature perspective. And Leanne's question here is about, does that make me, well, she does make you, but she means her. Yeah. Does that make you immature or just no longer compatible with the other person? Well, what would make you immature is to blame something on them. Yeah. Oh, this is your fault. We're no longer together. It's just like if I blame my daughter because the shirt she wore three years ago no longer fits her. Mm-hmm. Well, this relationship no longer fits your friend, Leanne. Mm -hmm. There's no one to blame here. It just no longer fits. And the immature thing would be say, well, you know what? I don't care that it doesn't fit you anymore. You need to keep wearing this relationship. You Mm -hmm. need to keep wearing that shirt that is too tight, too small, the wrong size for you. And that is going to make them miserable. And it's also going to make you miserable. How do you let go? You stop the blaming. Mm-hmm. You understand that it's not their fault. It's not your fault. Your paths crossed for a while and now they've bifurcated. You've moved in a new direction and so have they. You can look back and appreciate it. You can even have a funeral for the relationship mm-hmm. that once was because maybe that funeral for that relationship will help you let go. Patrons, thank you so much. Heck yeah. For your time today. What an episode. I can't wait to Good one. share so much more with you real soon. Love people. Use things. We'll see you soon. See you guys. Thanks, patrons. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing. That's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it